Being a school principal might just be the most interrupted job on the planet. Every celebration, classroom party, and great lesson in the school, you're invited. Every difficult conversation with a parent whose child is not behaving or with a teacher who's chronically late to work, you're there too. And every emergency in the building with 500, 1,000, 2,000 people in it, it's your emergency. And on top of all that, you are responsible every day for the safety of the world's most precious asset, our children. How do they do it? We're here to find out, here in the principal's office. Welcome back for the Principal's Office podcast. My name is Jeff Gorski, career educator and lifelong learner and consultant at Leaders Building Leaders. Our team, that's Tom Miller, myself, and a few others, we have the opportunity to, to visit schools around North Carolina every day. And every time we meet a new school leader, we get to ask them a million questions, and, and we walk away from the school with our minds racing, looking for ways to share what we just saw with school leaders around the state. This podcast was born because we know how demanding it is to be a school principal and to get out of your building. But if we're going to do everything we can to help all of our students in this state, then we need to open up this line of communication so that the best practices get shared. Well, today we have arrived at Henderson Collegiate in Henderson, North Carolina, and have been welcomed into the school by executive director and co-founder of the school, Mr. Eric Sanchez. Eric also serves on North Carolina's Charter School Advisory Board, where a group of school leaders and appointees make recommendations to the State Board of Ed on the fate of new public charter school applicants as well as existing schools that have been referred for financial, academic, or compliance issues. This school, Henderson Collegiate, embodies what the charter school movement is all about. They started in a trailer on the other side of town with one grade six years ago and grew into a brand new, beautiful facility where they are today. And as they grew in size, they also grew in ambition, as they have expanded to nearly 600 students in six grades, and will continue to grow until 2019, when they have a full K-12 experience for their families. What also grew through time was their laser-like focus on providing support to teachers and uncompromising expectations for students. During this conversation, Eric walks us through their system, that continues to improve each year, which is, I just have to say, mind-blowing. Uh, their attention to detail, their understanding of a unified vision, and the refinement of their practices have produced a completely unique and special opportunity for their students and families. And it is for this kind of opportunity that, that charter schools were created. So please get a notepad and a pen because hearing what is possible at Henderson Collegiate is going to make you want to take action at your school. So thank you for listening, and here is our conversation with Eric Sanchez. Great. So we are here in the middle of Vance County. Of all the places you could start a school, why here? Yeah. Um, so we came here, and uh, me and my wife, co-founders of the school, came here in 2002 uh, with Teach for America, um, and just fell in love with, with being here, fell in love with the community, fell in love with uh, being part of the lives of, of children, especially in eastern North Carolina, uh, in a rural place where you just see everybody all the time, right? Where you see them at the ballpark, you see them at the Walmart, you see them everywhere, um, and wanted to be part of the progress of this community. And so when the opportunity did come our way of starting the school, uh, there was only one place that, that we would do it. I think mixed with that is the struggles of the community and understanding that um, there what there weren't 
any options for low-income children uh, of where they could uh, access an excellent education, uh, an excellent public education. And so um, given that there weren't, the choices were limited, and especially for low-income children, uh, you know, we felt that we had found a place that met exactly the sweet spot, right? Somewhere we wanted to live, somewhere we fell in love with, uh, matched with uh, a need that we felt like we could be part of the solution for providing. And so you in this school, I have only being here for a few minutes already today, you must hang your hat on this model of teacher feedback and teacher observation, uh, which seems to be unique to anything that, that I've ever seen or we've seen across the state. Uh, how did that come about? You know, I, I think the first thing is the enduring understanding that we all believe, which is uh, uh, students are the constant teachers of the variable. And this really understanding the belief that kids are being served somewhere, right? Like there, there are places that pockets of excellence, no matter what the demographic is, no matter what the challenges are, there are people that are, that are doing well with kids. And if that, knowing that's possible, then we just need to make sure we're as good as they are in order to make sure we're reaching kids. And so we put a lot of investment, a lot of time, uh, a lot of stock uh, into making sure that all of our efforts are going to making sure that people that are in those four walls are prepared uh, to help our kids reach their potential. To answer your question of how it came, um, you know, we have had great relationships with uh, Uncommon Schools in uh, specifically in Jersey, the North Star Schools of the Uncommon brand and uh and i've learned a ton from them and we've done some of their workshops and even some of their uh um, professional development out of uh, the relay grad school of education and so we specifically learned their model uh um, <coughs> described in the book leverage leadership uh for what you uh for the feedback for the observation feedback cycle as well as the uh, data analysis feedback cycle uh, and it's two things that we've tried to get better and better and better at. And so hopefully you got to see a version that is quite different than three years ago when we were just trying this. Right. So can you tell us how often a teacher gets observed and receives feedback? And then what you would say to someone who thinks that that, that level of involvement is outrageous or impossible to, to get to? You know, the first thing is, is that like, you know, you know, the whole idea of like, right. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to mess this up, but the whole Abraham Lincoln quote of like, if you give me six hours to cut down a tree, I'm going to spend what, the five, first five hours sharpening my axe sure, or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, it has to start there with starting with the climate of the school and making sure feedback is going in every direction, everywhere from up, down, sideways, whatever you want to say, everybody's getting feedback and it's just part of who we are. In fact, it's desired, right? Like today I'm sending out uh, my, my executive director newsletter and I've sent it to two people. To, to rip it apart. Tell me what, tell me what's ambiguous. Tell me what's long. Tell me what's, and give me feedback on that. And that's a small example, but it just goes to show you kind of how we do things here. Um, and so it starts with that. I think the, with regard to after that is established, um, we try then to make sure that, uh, we don't try, we do it, which is to make sure that the best people are our coaches and our coaches need two things, right? One, they need to have demonstrated um, that they are excellent teachers in the Henderson Collegiate School, and again, uh, we don't we don't we don't hire leadership people 
uh, straight into leadership roles. You first have to be a teacher here. And so everything's homegrown in that regard. Um, and so first that they're excellent teachers. And I think um, second, that they're going to get an opportunity uh, to also still teach. I think it's important for that. Like if we just took our best teachers out of the classroom and never got to show how good they are, uh, then there's, there's a gap there. And so we need that young teacher that comes into the school to be able to, uh, to get feedback from great teacher, but also to go see it uh, so that way they can model themselves after it. And yeah, they observe um, uh, an average of three observations a week along with an hour standing meeting in which then they go through the observation debrief cycle. But the relationship should be one of a mentor, of a coach, in that it's far beyond what I just described. I mean, they're going to call, a co uh, when the relationship is great, the teacher calls them at night and says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm still wondering this, or I want to go through this, or can you give me some additional feedback on this? Um, it should have that relationship. And when we look at all the professions out there, right, I don't care if it's uh, Tom Brady having a quarterback coach that he gets feedback through who he watches film with. Or when we talk about new surgeons going into the profession, nobody just lets them slice and dice, right? <laughs> there's there's some oversight. There's some uh, assistance with learning how to do that before they have the autonomy to go on their own. Um, or the other example we like to use is new pilots, right? They don't just jump in a jumbo jet and start flying people around. There's a lot of training, uh, on-the-spot feedback, um, and even feedback subsequent uh, to when they start flying and doing things. And so we feel that our kids are that, or just are that important, right? Uh, that we need to make sure that it's not, it's on a daily basis, they're getting the best teacher they can. And so as a result, we put the investment to have the best coaches who give on the spot feedback, who give written feedback, who then go into the observation debrief cycle and help the teacher <laughs> practice their craft. Yeah, well, it sounds like you, in that model, have addressed kind of the paradox of school leadership, which is that, the higher you ascend into school leadership, the less time you actually spend face-to-face -face serving students. And so you have those people actually still teaching with a class load of students that are your... That are your um, yeah, let me clarify coaches. that point. Um, so they teach, uh, they would teach like one period a day. Right. Um, so I want, I want to make it sound overwhelming here in terms of what their day looks like, but they'll teach like the first period for a new teacher, right? And the new teacher will see that and get to replicate it the other three periods. You also just really hit on a great point in terms of this paradox of leadership and whatnot. In our school, um, leadership is, in terms of the classroom, in terms of instruction, is only described as instructional leadership, meaning the principal of our school has nothing to do with regular administration, doesn't know anything about it, doesn't want to know anything about it. His world is all in on instructional leadership, on making sure the classrooms are, are, are the best they can be, make sure the school culture is the best they can be, as well as working with parents, but nothing outside of that. And I think when we've, cr we've created a world where all of that leadership team is all in on student achievement, on student culture, on parent investment, all of that, and, and doesn't touch administration, doesn't touch budgets, doesn't touch anything like that, well, that enables them to, to specialize and, and really you know grow quickly, sure. grow kids quickly, I should say. Mm -hmm. So I think the other, the other thing that slaps you in the face about this school, and I'm looking right here at a graph on the wall that pins student performance composite against percent of economically disadvantaged students is a, this school, Henderson Collegiate, is in a class of its own. It is an outlier on that chart. And so what do you attribute your separation 
from the rest of the schools in North Carolina too? You know, I, I think I think one of the first things is to understand people ask us this a lot. And so the first answer I give is not the answer they want to hear, which is we believe there, uh, as said in Wendy Cop's book, there are 101% solutions. There's no silver bullets and there, and there's sure no scapegoats. Um, and so uh, we're always looking and starving for those 1%. Now, going back to climate, because, you know, I think we, we began this discussion, I guess, off the record talking about uh, Patrick Lacioni in, in his book, uh, The Advantage. And I think he just goes into it so well of saying that most people don't spend time making sure their organization is healthy. And so we spend a lot of time doing that. And we make, and the reason is, is because then you're seeing the data now. You look at it three years ago when everybody got hit by Common Core. I needed to bring that same group of people and it wasn't a celebratory moment. It was, we just got, you know, a gut punch. I need to get them in a, in a room and be able to say, all right, as a healthy organization, let's move mountains. You know, there's no time to sit here and cry about it or point fingers or do anything. It's time to, you know, uh, to really revamp and get better. And so it starts there before anything can be talked about is making sure I've got a school, an organization that when we see problems and there will be problems, there will be challenges, there will be things that are not as good as we want them to be. There will be data that, that will be startling that we get back together and we're able to collectively move mountains um, in a way that uh, is efficient and is best for kids. Um, the second thing, I guess, as we look at that, uh, we needed to make sure three years ago that uh, first, I guess, first and foremost, that we were after the climate, that we were teaching the right things. Um, and I think sometimes schools have a hard time doing that, looking inside and saying, is what the kids are getting uh, going to get them to this end in mind? It sounds simple. Sometimes it even sounds cliche, but uh, we had to look at our rigor and look at how what our kids are being asked to do on a daily basis and making sure it was rigorous enough in order to get there. And, and it wasn't. And so we really spent a lot of time and we do it every summer, um, really revamping our curriculum. And what we give teachers in order to start the year is a lot of times very different from other places in terms of the curriculum guides, unit plans, in terms of how we lesson plan. We believe that 70 percent of our summer should be on intellectual preparation. And in terms of being prepared for the classroom, being content experts, being really ready to drive student achievement. We've gotten better and better and better at that. Um, and I think the last thing that I would, I would focus on is this idea of high expectations for adults. We can go into high expectations for kids, and I think a lot of people can define that differently. Um, and certainly we have our own way of thinking about that. Um, but when we talk about adults, and we started this conversation talking about um you know, adults being the variable and children being the constant, uh, ensuring that our teachers are taking the time to prepare and the lesson plans they submit, I would argue, are are, um, are really a distinguishing characteristic of them. Like if you look at their lesson plans and you look at the five pages for one lesson, most people like, I usually do an outline for the week and call it a day. Mm -hmm. um, how they prepare for class, um, how they, uh, how they, navigate the classroom in terms of being able to use all the instructional repertoire tools that we have uh, we have taught them and then how they utilize and implement feedback as well as how they utilize data, I think are distinguishing things. And, and when everybody in the school is doing it, when we're all in this world of just really pushing ourselves, because if you want more, do more. And if there's a problem that's as, as big as it is right now with regard to the achievement gap, you can't 
the biggest thing you can offer it is time. And we make sure we offer a relentless pursuit to, to achieving those results. Yeah. And the amount of time that you invest into helping the adults be better at what they're doing is a major component in this equation. And so one of the things we were talking about a few minutes ago was finding people who are willing to join you on that journey. So way out here, you know, an hour outside of Raleigh, an hour outside of Durham, um, how do you, what is your recruitment process like? How do you get people to join you in, in, in making this school? First, we say 40 minutes outside. Okay. That, that helps us. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think, uh, I think we've been very fortunate um, to be able to have a recruitment process that, uh, that, gets, um, that gets people to know us as much as we get to know them. You know, our application process is not just an evaluation of the candidate. We want them to do this. I mean, even we tell people, if you're 1% interested, go through it. Like, learn about us, learn about, learn about yourself, go through the process. Uh, if nothing else, it would have been a good professional development, right? Because they'll come in, they'll teach some classes here, they'll get some feedback, uh, they'll interview, they'll, they'll, you know, all life skills, all things that people want to practice, want to get uh, time to do. And at the end, if they feel like they got to know us well and they feel good about it, and likewise, if we feel the same way, then then it's a match. Um, it's kind of, uh, I don't know if it's an accidental value uh, using going back to the advantage. Um, we've also we've also had a lot of youth. And so 70% of our staff started their careers at Henderson Collegiate. And so again, that highlights or, or underscores how important it is to make sure that our instructional coaching is that great, right? Because we need to develop first-year teachers in an expedited way. Um, otherwise nothing like that, nothing is possible. Uh, no student achievement is possible. Um, but once we get them in here, I, again, I, I can't say it enough. Like people hear the feedback cycle and things like that. This is a collaboration. This is not evaluation. It's not going in your room and trying to rip apart your class and say, this is bad, or this is, it's, it's not that it's a, it's a way to highlight what you codify, what you're doing well. So you keep doing it and help you, uh, engage and, and work on the things uh, that you can be doing better at. And so that those relationships are everything, right? You read all types of leadership books and everything talks about the relationships people have in the building, right? The relationships with their colleagues and the relationship with their immediate manager. And we do it well. We really, we really pride ourselves in chemistry and building relationships, authentic relationships. Uh, um, and I think also to your point about being in a real place, it sometimes even helps because the bottom line is we spend a lot of time with each other. You know, so the same person you were giving feedback to, uh, you might be watching the Super Bowl with that weekend, right? Or you might, uh, you know, be hanging out with that weekend or playing football or playing tennis with them that weekend. It just works that way within a rural community a lot of times. So it kind of closes the loop on your community just yeah. a little bit in a good way. Yeah. yeah so yeah. do you have a favorite interview question that you like to ask candidates? I mean, one that we have fallen in love with. I don't know if it's my favorite, but uh, uh, it, it usually... People don't know how to go about it, which I enjoy, and then and then they grapple with it, which is fill in the blank. I blank feedback, and that word is usually telling because you'll get a word like accept. I accept feedback, and most people say it. So I don't. It's not like we we dock them for it, but then I'll say, all right, I'm going to tell you mine. I hunger for feedback. Um, what's the difference, right? And so then usually 
that's the, actually the real question, right? If they're able to contrast those things and say, somebody who hungers for feedback is trying to get better, is trying to improve, somebody who accepts feedback is simply just willing to do it within the model they're at so that they appear to be accepting of, of leadership and whatnot. I like that. What do you think that teachers are most unprepared for when they get here? You said 70% of your teachers begin their, their career. So what do you think that teachers are most unprepared for at the beginning of their career? Well, they have to learn three things, right? They have to learn. Um, they have to learn how to be professionals. Um, they have to learn how to be content experts, and then they have to learn how to build student culture. And so, that's one of the difficulties of trying to to get somebody. Because if you focus on any any one of those things in isolation, uh, the other two can bite you. And so, being professional at twenty two and handling yourself as a professional uh, is not something that comes. Uh, easy to, to, to recent graduates. Um, and so that would be one, and I'm guessing you're asking recent graduates, right? Yeah. Uh, because when we hire people who have taught before, traditionally one or two of those at least are gone, which helps them focus a little more on something else, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe they have trouble with student culture, but they're really content experts and they've been professionals for you. Then we can focus, hey, here's how you actually build a culture of high expectations. But I would say all three of those, they're simultaneously learning. And that's why when a new teacher comes to our school, they start at the end of July and they don't teach actually their first class until uh, first week of September, right after Labor Day, right around there. And so they spend the first uh, they fr spend the first week learning the Henderson Collegiate Way. They then spend the next couple of weeks just intellectual preparation, really planning and learning how to plan, as well as practice. We haven't gone into practice today, but practice is everything. We talk about feedback here, but feedback is nothing without practice, practice, practice. And so you guys got to see it, um, I'm hoping, in, in the uh, uh, observation debrief you saw, but we practice everything. Every, every professional development ends with practice. Every debrief cycle ends with practice. Everything has practice in it. Uh, in the same way every classroom should end with practice, right? Uh, and so then they practice. Then two weeks of summer sessions start and our, our, only our veteran teachers teach and they observe and debrief those lessons, the, the new teachers. Uh, they get to know all the kids. They have all their lesson plans done. They just really get their feet underneath them. And then they start teaching again the first, I think it's the first day after Labor Day. And they, and then even then they're observed every single day. And every day they're practicing and working with their coach. For the first month, they're observed every day. The veteran teachers don't get observed as much during that time, but uh, we go all in to expedite the growth, I guess, of our, of our new teachers. Has it happened that you have scared teachers away with this process? In the application process or once they're hired? Both, either. Traditionally, not in the application process. And not, I'm sorry, not in the, not once we've hired them. Mm -hmm. um, very rarely, if any. Uh, I'm having trouble even thinking of anybody. Because we do such a good job up front of telling you who we are. And we really think culture is, it, both during the application process and during the school year, we really believe in this idea of like culture makes you be in a position of jump in or jump out. Right? Either get on board and jump all the way in, and 99% of the time that happens once we've hired somebody, even if they were a little hesitant to, to go in at, at first, um, or or frankly jump out and, and, and let us know this isn't for you. And we help, we, we, if we do it well, it happens during the application process where somebody jumps in or jumps out. And so like I said, somebody comes here and teaches a class and then we give them, somebody actually, if somebody's gonna teach a sample lesson, they submit lesson plans, they get feedback on that, and they may have multiple rounds of feedback. Then they come in and they uh, teach a class and they get feedback between classes to go then implement in the very next class. And then if we still, 
you know, we believe in humble, hungry, and smart. And we believe that if, if your humility or your ability to take feedback, it just isn't there yet, then we make sure the, the interview process has multiple role plays of getting feedback to be sure whether you are, are comfortable with this or ready for it. Uh, so we hit it hard. Clearly. <laughs> that's, that's very involved. I mean, the, the level of organizational clarity that, that you've achieved at this school was evident to us by being walked around by, by two eighth grade students who I felt like probably understood the why of all the things that we were looking at on the walls and through the hallways and the classrooms, as well as any adult. So, you know, it's trickling down to the students, all of that organizational clarity. That's awesome. Uh, moving, moving to some, uh, some of your personal philosophy and background, uh, is there someone from your life that you would call a mentor or a professional role model that helped shape kind of your vision of what education should look like? Yeah, yeah. Um, Caleb Dolan. Um, he was the co-founder of Kip Gaston uh, here in North Carolina. Now he's the executive director of uh, Kip, Massachusetts. Um, he's, I mean, he's still a guy that if I encounter something that I'm not sure how to respond to, um, I text him, hey, Caleb, can you talk for five minutes and, and walk me through this? Uh, and certainly as new school leaders, uh, there were, that was happening quite regularly. Uh, and then I still go up to Boston, observe with him and, and observe uh, some of the great things that are happening in KIPP world as well as other worlds in Massachusetts. But Caleb um, was responsible for really showing me what it meant to, to, be, to build at scale and, 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 do, and build a school that has great student culture. Um, I felt like I was doing some of that in, in my four walls and, uh, and I felt like I didn't, I was part of this world and, and granted I take responsibility for this where I just thought about me in these four walls and what I needed to accomplish with those students and not part of the bigger picture of the team that were there. And Caleb really helped us understand like a great team owns all the dysfunctions in the school, even if you're not personally experiencing them. Um, and he really helped us understand what the highest level of expectations were for kids in every regard. Maybe I was touching that in terms of what they could do uh, on an exam or what they could do in a classroom, but uh, probably wasn't touching that in terms of socially what they were capable of uh, or what they could do uh, with regards to even um, uh, to support each other from a peer perspective, to to engage with uh, with outsiders or externals or community members. Um, any of these things in terms of what kids are really capable of doing um, at the highest levels of just great culture, not academics, of just great student culture, uh, all came from his ability to really show how you create that, how you sustain that, how you reinforce it, how you revamp it, all of those pieces. Excellent. So in addition to, to learning from a mentor, you've already mentioned the book The Advantage by Pat Valencioni. Are there any other go-to books that you utilize uh, to refine your professional practice? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a bunch of uncommon. So first is leverage, leverage leadership, um, which again goes into uh, this idea of the principle as the instructional leader, um, and and specifically into the observation debrief cycle, as well as um, uh, his other book, which he also mentions in here, which is uh, just driven by data and really making sure data is a focal point of the school. And we we really pride ourselves in the, in the data, how to do that cycle of analyzing data and then actually making it living in the classroom. Um, actually even more pervasive than that in this school would be Teach Like a Champion, which allows us to have a shared language of the classroom, right? Um, you look at fundamentally driven um, 
things that's, that, that organizations do. I don't care if it's a football team where they can name exactly uh, every aspect of how the quarterback's supposed to draw back and throw. And I mean, they can name it and they can give feedback within it. We feel that shared language enables us to do that. It's not ambiguous, right? I could walk with one of my teachers. You guys could come with me right now and we could go to a classroom and name a bunch of things that we feel are fundamental to our school and some things that maybe are missing uh, within the context of that classroom. Um, and so that's a huge book. And then lastly, uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of school culture, every single person who, uh, uh, is employed at our school, um, reads, uh, leadership and self-deception. Um, uh, I think it's the Arbinger Institute or something is the, it's the author. Um, but everybody gets that, a copy of that. I mean, as soon as you're hired, you get a copy of that. And every year we not only do that in new new teacher orientation, we not only go over that and debrief it and practice um, things like that, we then um, also uh, kind of do a, a renewing our vows of sorts uh, when the full staff comes back. And one of the things we, we practice within that is just how to have conversations with each other, especially difficult conversations. And we actually practice it. We go over and over and over it. Somebody steps on your toe, so to speak, how, how are you to respond to it? And we believe that one great thing about our organization is we take it to the source. And so there isn't those water cooler conversations or those backroom, uh, you know, inner office politic world. Like you have a problem, go and say it to somebody and work it out. And we believe that if everybody's adhering to their norm in terms of saying, if you're griping somewhere, somebody's going to say, go take it to the source. And that's one of the ways we stay out of the organization. So who, in, in that kind of, in that mindset of being willing to have feedback flow all over in every direction and expect it, who do you trust to tell you when you're wrong as a leader of the organization? Yeah, yeah. Well, first off, my co-founder is my wife, so <laughs> I don't have to look far uh, <laughs> in terms of getting that. Um, but one of, the, one of the things we've been able to do here, right, is we started off with a leadership team of three. Um, and we had our recent leadership retreat that is now at, uh, I think it was 21 leaders that came across three, three schools starting next year when we open our third school. And um, we have never lost a member of the leadership team once we've given you that, that opportunity. So everybody here, we've never lost a leader, like in terms of as a school growing. Again, we're only in our sixth year, so it's still a small sample size. But most of these people have signed on for multiple years coming up. And so I think that type of stability, right, in terms of just having those interactions over and over and over again, the people you spend time with the most are the people that are going to be uninhibited around you, right? It's, uh, and so I've spent five, six years with these people. They're not going to uh, uh, hesitate to basically pull me aside and say, this is something that, that, that was bothering me or this was, eh, this, you know, this was dicey. This wasn't as clear as you may want it to be. Or they simply, which is more times than that, will come up to me and say, hey, you may want to follow up by doing this, this, and this. Like, it was cool what you just spoke about or whatever professional development you just did or whatever it was, but you may want to, or you may want to keep your eye on this. I'm seeing this slip in the school, keep your eye on this. And so we have that. And the, the beauty of it, the most important thing is we have it informally, Right. So again, I go back to a sports analogy, right? It's not like a player is going to look at another player on the basketball court and, and who's not playing defense and say, you know what? I'm going to set up a meeting with him uh, tomorrow and talk with him about him. not. He's going to look at him to play, get back on D, play. And so our people, we really feel like they do that when it's really working well, will see me in the hallway and pull me aside 
and I'll pull them aside and we'll just very candid conversation. Uh, but since we have these strong relationships, we don't feel the relationships at stake when, when we have those conversations. And so we're able to get better faster because of that. Nobody's reluctant. Nobody has to preface. Nobody, uh, nobody kind of hides how they feel. Excellent. So as you've grown as a leader, specifically within the last year or two years, is there anything that you used to believe was true about this education world that we live in that you now have changed your mind? Yeah, we, we, we joke all the time. We said if uh, you took our school in our first two, three years and we took what we thought was a good classroom, matched it up against a good classroom right now, it wouldn't be close. Mm. I mean, it would blow it out the water. And what is the biggest change? The biggest change is this idea of, you know, not being the sage on the stage, uh, but being the guide on the side. And that's either said and done. We spent about two, three years trying to get it done. Like we named it, but it, we weren't doing it. And so um, it was this ability to be able to release responsibility to quit kids quicker, to let them grapple with things, aggressively monitor, which is our way of getting around the classroom to get data. You should be like, you should be investigators during that time, get data from kids and then be able to come back up and say, all right, here's what I'm seeing. Here's how, here's where we need, how we need to fix it and give them feedback, right? So like, again, it's, I use, I can use sports, I can use band as an analogy, but right, like we don't sit there and give a lecture on doing a layup, right? When we're teaching kids how to do layup, you let them do it, you stop and you say, all right, next time do this, next time do that. And that's what we want to do in a reading class, math class, anywhere is like, hey, let them miss the shot. Let them look awful doing it. Stop them, give them a pointer, help them do that. And we believe that that type of grappling and struggle really, really has helped our kids uh, build talent. And one, another great book that I, that I really enjoy is called The Talent Code. Um, uh, it's, it's one of my favorite books and one of my favorite staff reads that we've had here. And one of the points that it goes to is this idea of deep practice, the idea of practicing the exact gap from where you, where you are and where you want to be. And we feel if we put our kids in that world, right, of really doing analysis, let's say on their writing, and really figure out what are our kids missing and then giving them deep practice with that exact thing they're missing. Let's say it was explaining citations. Ex spend the class really helping them do that, that they're going to grow quicker. What we did before was, again, much more traditional teaching of uh, lecture style, guided practice, uh, independent practice. And then we'd go home and find out all the things they're doing wrong. Now we know it by the time the independent practice happens because there's been cycles of kind of the I do, we do, you do. There's been cycles in the class, a bunch of cycles of it. So by the time our students are get to the independent practice, they have gotten a ton of feedback, either individually from the teacher or the teacher has stopped the class and said, hey, here's the trend that I'm seeing. Here's how we need to fix it. Go, go try again. So I hope that's informative. I don't know if that's from <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. I don't know if it was clear. It's, it was. Uh, last question for me, and then you guys, you guys can go. Um, looking back at your first year as a principal or in school administration, what advice would you give to yourself? And can you tell us where you were in that first year? Was it here? I was. Uh, our high school is using the same campus as we started, which uh, uh, is about a mile, two miles maybe down the block. Um, so the question was, what advice would I give that person? Give to yourself as a first year principal. Trying to think of both what advice I would give them and what that person would have been able to receive. Because <laughs> I have two young principals and I've told them, like, everything's not, don't worry, everything's not the end of the world, right? Things happen. You're gonna, it'll be all right. Roll, roll through it and, and figure out solutions. But that, nobody, 
nobody believes that, right? You're a first year person. You want to believe that, but at the same time, you go with your gut, which is this feels like the end of the world and you just go with it. And so the only experience is life's best teacher within that uh, feedback. Um, I guess, uh, I guess I would say be more, um, and I still strive to do this, be more disciplined with your time um, and schedule everything schedule everything in a very strategic way to meet very strategic goals of, of your day um, uh, and avoid spending your day putting out fires. Uh, set up systems and ways of doing things that will enable you to expand your capacity because at the end of the day, it's not just what I can do individually within situations, whether it's teach a class, deal with a student that, that that's having some difficulty. It's how I expand my capacity so other people can do that. So we're truly growing an organization. And I don't, I don't know if in the beginning I would have thought it like that. I just thought of all hands on deck, anything I could do to help the organization stay afloat, do it. And it wasn't very strategic in terms of building capacity around others so that they could do that. And I'm expanding that, that, that group as much as I can to, to be a full force. I think that epiphany may have come later on. Excellent. Thank you. So I love that advice. And, and I think folks need to come hang out with you to, to, to know how is this guy getting it done, right? So the first thing that you know Jeff just heard for the first time is there's no substitutes here. So when you just said avoid putting out fires all day, one fire that a lot of charter school leaders do is I need someone to cover this class. What's the reason for the no subs, I guess, A, and then how did you create the schedule to make sure that you could handle that? You know, in the advantage, uh, they said that the things you believe in, your values or whatnot, uh, are so important to you that you're willing to suffer. Uh, we have suffered uh, by not by not doing the substitutes, but I think we've benefited more than we, we've suffered, which is that um, we just don't, ha we believe our culture is so tight, right? Like I just told you, a new teacher doesn't teach for six weeks until they feel really ready uh, to produce a classroom that we feel is, is Henderson Collegiate quality. How could somebody just a random person coming in and be able to do that. It would be unfair to them and it wouldn't be fair to our kids. Um, not only that, uh, we have found when we looked at substitutes that uh, they have trouble, they're not able to teach. They're able to facilitate at best a quiet study hall type of uh, class, but not able to come in there and actually uh, help kids learn. Uh, and so the benefits just to us aren't, aren't there. What do we do? Um, uh, we have, I guess, three different ways we handle if a, if a teacher's out. Um, and then I'll tell you what we're going to do next year, which I think is going to be earth-shattering for our school. Uh, so one is uh, an, an instructional coach teaches the class. And they're, they're the instructional coach of that person normally, so they know the lesson intuitively, and they can teach it at to the highest of levels. And so kids don't miss a beat, right? But the person they were coaching does. And so, uh, you know, the other people they're coaching don't get the, the benefit of that person and then their calendar gets all messed up. So we don't like to do that as much. Second is we give teachers the opportunity to kind of double their class, so to speak. So let's say the math teacher was going to give a test that day, especially if we find out with enough notice, the math teacher was going to give a test. All right, we'll put somebody in, we'll, we'll do a rotation of teachers to simply have the kids do the test in that class. And then the math teacher gets to actually have their own class still and teach. And so it's, it's very easy to watch that class because they're doing a math test. And then the math teacher, you know, gets to get ahead of their pacing and gets to and teach a different lesson. Uh, and a lot of people like to take advantage of that. They go, you know, 
pacing is always a difficult piece. The last one is um, we cancel the class and we have a member of leadership um, teach the full group of students. Um, it's either a, a pride lesson, meaning a, a values lesson could be anything about, you know, we do so many things around social skills, around becoming teenagers, around all these types of things uh, that are important to their lives. Um, it could be that type of lesson, could be a current event, or it could be uh, a current event that it's attached to our values, um, or, it could be, um, or it could be simply that lesson, but to the full group. And what the, the reason for that is, one, because our leaders can't teach sometimes four classes. You know, the principal may teach all of those students with maybe one coach helping them there, and then everybody else gets to have their planning period. And so you keep the planning period, and you, you also maximize student learning by having the best teacher in the school, and the principal is the best teacher in the school. Our, our middle school principal is one of the best teachers I've ever seen. And so when he does that, kids don't miss a beat. They don't lose any learning opportunities. And they, and teachers also still get their planning and still have the other four classes. But next year, next year um, we are starting our associate teacher program, which we're really excited about. And this will be taking young teachers straight out of college uh, with the opportunity to come work with some of our best teachers, learn the craft, learn content knowledge, and when there's opportunities, so we'll have our in-house kind of substitutes, and they'll have known the culture, you know, and it won't be in their first month or two, but when they're really ready for it, they can then jump in. And so hopefully, I guess the goal would be that from November on, they could jump in and lead a class uh, uh, with some support, but lead a class and be able to, one, get some deep practice and, and, and then mastering the craft, uh, and two, provide us with a valuable resource. You only get 190 days to do this. I mean, we get breaks, right? We get... we. Schools do get a lot of a lot of time off, uh, especially when you compare it to other professions. So let's do the days that we are here. Let's do them well, uh, and let's not miss them. And, and to be honest, our teachers don't. Sometimes we'll fall. I mean, a lot of times we got to send them home. <laughs> we don't, you know, this norovirus thing has spread among our teachers, and so we're not dealing with that. <laughs> Can you talk a little um, about <clears throat> operational planning? Right. So, so, so most you know school leaders are going to say, "Oh, well, they must really, really pay their educators a lot of money." Right. But you have an eight and a half hour workday, maybe longer. Um, the, the, the kids that you serve are the, you know, are the kids that everybody say can't learn. Right. And you're clearly making that. So so how are you doing it with six instructional coaches, a school leader, a principal at every level, plus executive director, administrative uh, you know, pieces. So and, and you run transportation and you run a lunch program. How are you guys able to do it? and stay viable financially? Um, so, you know, I think there's there's a few things in this. I think uh, the first thing is we started off well, right? Like, and so uh, we started off with smart decisions uh, with regard to our finances. Um, we started off with uh, county land that the county, and the county helped us a lot. County land for free um, and one modular building. So you're paying rent for one building for one set of kids instead of, uh, what was an alternative option, which was renovating an old Winn-Dixie uh, for a million dollars and only putting one group of kids in and having that really starting off with trouble with that. Um, I think the bigger piece is, is how we look at a budget, right? Everybody talks about this idea of um, uh, running schools like businesses and whatnot. And I, I think I never completely understood what that meant. Uh, just do things smart with money, you know, um, don't overlap if you don't need to, uh, expenditures.
But we're three. I mean, that's what I take it as. Within us, what we think about is what are the big rocks? Get them in the budget. If they mean something, you put it in, right? And then know what you're going to sacrifice as a result. And so um, I use this example actually right before I met with you guys, which is like I have two children, right? And so we're going to value two things in their life that are really important. Uh, one is their educational experiences, both uh, school and otherwise, um, in terms of their camps and sports and all those things. They're everything educational. And two, um, the family experiences, right? We want to travel. We want to do things like that. Everything else doesn't matter as much. And so my camera release is up in a few months. I'm not going to get something really good. Uh, I probably might even downsize, to be honest, uh, because it's not part of it. And so that's the same thing in our school. We have to understand like what we're about, what we're going to spend money on, and everything else has to has to be, uh, you know, has to be not used or, or not not we don't do. And so um, we consider child nutrition or, or the uh, food services and bus to be crucial to who we were. And so they were put in the budget first, not last. And that's what you're seeing a lot of, right? Like people who create a budget and like, ah, how do I scrape and get this, you know, this in? No, they were put in first. Um, and then um, and then the other piece is, I guess, when we view personnel, um, which may differ from other people. And again, I don't want to be, um, I don't want to sound like I don't, I don't value veteran teachers, um, but we have had, we, we make decisions where we are able to get investments, uh, invest in young teachers. And so that helps us with cost. Uh, it also, it also helps us with, um, deciding who really is your franchise player to fully invest money into. And so if 70% of our teachers start off in the first, almost all of our teachers actually start off in that first kind of rung of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, pay scale, right? Zero to four years, zero to five years, whatever it is. Um, then we get to determine after they've been here, whether or not who need, who deserves that level of investment, uh, to really invest in both their, uh, their development as well as, uh, in terms of compensation. So every teacher that's here four years after their fourth year on the pay scale, all their Hindus and collegiate years double. So let's say a teacher came in with two years of experience, spends four years here, they would normally be on the sixth year, going into the seventh year, sixth year of the pay scale. Here, they're on 10. And it just keeps going like that because we feel like if you've been here four years, then we, we want you here and, and we're willing to put in. And it just keeps going, to be honest, to the point where there's teachers that make more than instructional coaches. And we're fine with that. Excellent. Wow. And, and it all goes back to your core values, right? So you're, oh. so it's a values-based um, um, budget. Yeah, budget. So I want to go back uh, quickly because this shouldn't blow anybody's mind, but you use the word. <clears throat> so the brand new teacher spends six weeks. They're not in the classroom yet. And they spend two weeks in intellectual development. Is that what you Intellectual saying? planning. Yeah. So you are showing them how to think, right? And it's and there's even a classroom. There's a fourth grade class called thinking skills. Yeah. So talk more about how, because most folks spend more time thinking and planning a week's vacation than they do their entire lives. <laughs> you have a class based upon it and it's and it's it's part of what you do as a professional. So can you talk more about how that came about? Um and so, you know, like I said initially, right, they need to learn three things when they come in, right? They need to learn how to be professional, student culture, and uh and how to be uh content experts. 
And so the first is like spend some time not even talking about the class, learn the Henderson Collegiate way. And so that's important to to, to understand. And that kind of goes into this professionalism piece, right? The second piece actually is happening simultaneously, which is content experts, being a content expert, um, as well as uh, developing how to how to produce great student culture. And how that works during those two weeks is you get a lot of professional development. You do lesson plan clinics in which you're just creating lesson plans, getting, I mean, literally like this round table that we're sitting at right now, uh, they, you would have gotten some professional development, but similar to what I said about teaching, we would release it really quickly to you, let you start planning, start checking in with you, seeing what some of the, I mean, it's just like a classroom, seeing some of the trends, stop everybody, help people uh, redo it. They turn in those lesson plans, they get feedback immediately. Um, and that's happening for two weeks straight, unit plans and lesson plans, in order to just really help you get into this really deep practice world of creating good lesson plans. I mean, we believe if by the end of October, you're creating very, very good lesson plans, um, then you're on this path to be a, to be very strong in front of students by the end of the year. But if we're still talking about lesson planning in January, February, you know, obviously there's always tweaks, but if we're still really talking about that, uh, it's very difficult to see a trajectory where, uh, you know, high student achievement is happening in the classroom. And so I make sure that coaches are all in with lesson plan feedback um, and really working with teachers individually, uh, virtually, whatever it is to help expedite that growth. Simultaneously, you're also working on being able to just execute. And so there's a ton of practice sessions. I mean, uh, it's hard to even describe them. If you were to come here and watch one of our, what we call triathlons, where literally there's three different rooms that you, that you rotate through of requiring you to do three different, very regular type of uh, techniques, or very, uh, I guess, fundamental techniques to our school um, and practice them. So the, one might be just simply greeting kids in the hallway. Um, they're starting to do now and you're circulating, right? And it's seemingly easy, right? But uh, there's a ton of feedback in terms of your ability to start the class off with momentum, with energy, and provide also accountability for children uh, as they come in on their 80th day of school in their fourth class that day, and they're still fresh, still engaged, still ready to, to be their best selves. And so you're practicing all of that. Then during summer session, you're watching veteran teachers through very specific lenses. Our, our observations are always through, our, when we ask teachers to do observations, they're always through specific lenses. Because if you see everything, you see nothing. And we want you to see very specific things that are specific to what we want you to grow in. We, we normally, uh, the big piece is that we identify in those first couple of weeks where you might be struggling with and have you observe through those lenses. Then we debrief with you uh, at the end of that day. And what we've thrown in this year and a little bit last year that I think is uh, is actually even helping much more, it's really expediting people much more, is in the second week of summer session, with that lead teacher, you start doing some guided practice with students. So in other words, you take pieces of the class and you start doing it with getting some, you know, getting some feedback within the moment uh, or, you know, once kids start practicing, a little whisper here and there to help you just get better and better at it. And so what that's giving us is right it's giving us the kind of uh the the kind of inm or uh your ability to get new information and learn it and practice it then your guided practice working with veteran teachers and then right after labor day your independent practice of doing it on your own uh and being ready for that moment awesome so a book that we love is school culture rewired and and they talk about you know your culture. Uh, what are the stories that you want to keep going, right? So there's stories from an organization that you definitely want to put aside, and there's stories that you want everybody to tell. What's a story 
that you would love these walls to tell? I know this, you know, school is brand new, but, you know, 10 uh, years from now or, or, you know, maybe a story you have. What's that story of Henderson Collegiate? You know, when we're right now in the in the middle of this mission to get to get our first pride, our first class, uh, to stand on a stage, announce uh, the college of their choice, and head off to college in 2019. And so it always comes back to that end in mind, right? And so a lot of what we do is checking where we are within that. And uh, you know, our fourth graders walked in on the first day of school in their white shirts and they had to wear white shirts because uh, they earned wearing their Henderson Collegiate shirts to school. And they sat down on the carpet and they looked up at these people they didn't know uh, and didn't know what to expect, right? The words got not now with, with that, what that new student orientation has looked like. So kids are a little more prepared, I think, coming in. I mean, even our kids couldn't say collegiate right away. They said Colgate and other words. <laughs> uh, and so we had to practice that. And now when we meet new students, they can say collegiate. Um, but uh, I just remember being in that room and watching them uh, not really knowing how to navigate that room, not knowing, you know, we we call our new student orientation uh, boot camp slash pep rally, right? It's a lot of like, yeah, we're at Henderson Collegiate and cheering about it and don't ever do that again. Um, and so they just didn't know how to navigate that feeling, right? Of like rah, rah, rah and like and changing bad habits and watching them in all facets, right? In all regards of that three days, right? Whether it was how they raised their hands, how they answered questions, how they, uh, when we, when we gave them talk time at lunch, how to, how to do those moments. And then now going to the high school and seeing them as ninth graders and seeing them, um, you know, singing in the choir and playing in the band and, uh, doing coding in their, in their computer class, um, discussing the election, uh, whatever it is, um, you know, I guess it's that unwavering um, faith, right? The Stockdale paradox, right? If you, for those who are good to great fans, um, uh, that unwavering faith that the students that we saw during those moments, some of the students who we were like, oh my goodness, they are reading on this level, doing math on this level, their behaviors and bad habits and all of these things that are there. And now seeing them in ninth grade and seeing them as young men and women that know how to navigate uh, those same type of rooms, know how to talk to adults such as you guys, uh, know how to uh, have academic skills that are that are uh, on track to get them to college, all of those things. I would say if any story would continue or any theme of that story would continue is this unwavering faith in kids wow. and the high expectations that they'll get. So, so Eric, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. I mean, that was huge. Uh, there's so much more that folks can learn from you. So do you, do you all offer these tours all the time? Now, I know you actually do workshops sometimes on Saturdays for other schools as well. So can you talk a little bit about that so then we can maybe help that, um, you know, advertising or, or show other schools that there's opportunities for them to learn yeah, from yeah. Uh, you all? Well, we did, a, we did one, we did one Saturday school in February every year uh, for people who just want to revamp uh, come into school and see this uh, on a more selfish side. We do it for recruitment as well, uh, but it's usually for people who um, um, who just can't get away from the school during the normal work week and and uh, would like to come during Saturday. Uh, we have some of those Saturdays in May as well, um, but anybody can set up a, a visit and uh, with enough time in advance can set up a visit and debriefs with instructional leaders, either myself, the principal, or others uh, to have you know any type of debrief session. And we've had a number. We've had I don't know. 
10, 15 schools this year with uh, multiple staff members come in and do those observations and, and have that. And to be honest, it's not a, it's not a burden for us. Um, it, it enables our kids to once again, see that there's something special they're doing, get outside of the bubble. So we invite people to come in and, and, uh, and see that. And we also enjoy constructive feedback as well. So I, I don't want to give, not everything here is gravy. You know, there's a ton of things. Uh, and, and if you talk to our leaders, a lot of times they see the glass half empty. So, uh, cause they're so, they're trying to make the place so much better. Uh, there's so many things that we're currently working on to take the school to the next level. Yeah. Awesome. Right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you guys. I enjoyed it.